I always used to give Owen Sheehan a good bit of grief for his power rankings. They aren't easy, Will. As a group, as players, we have not done one minute of video analysis of any team this year. The Club Championship Show. Subscribe to the GEA podcast feed on the OTB Sports app now. Off the ball, daily. We're going to turn to talk about Nick Boliteri. He's a legendary tennis coach of the legendary academy in Florida. He passed away on Sunday at the age of 91. Son of Italian immigrant parents, he served in the US Army. He dropped out of law school to pursue a career in coaching. And it really was an extraordinary career. He coached 10 world number ones. Just to give you a sense of Boletarian action, he was often on the show down the years, actually. He would take phone calls uh, from off the ball over the years. In 2014, he became one of only four coaches inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. So here's a taster of Nick Boletari, his acceptance speech here, where he lays out how he got to where he is and also what it cost him. Have a listen. When I was yelling at you, I really, what I was really saying was, I believe in you and I want you to believe in yourself because you can do it. You can do anything you're willing to work hard for. And also having a team that surrounds you and believes in the same mission. That's how we made it up this mountain, by pushing each other, making huge sacrifices and being there for each other. Every member of the team is responsible for doing their part to make the mission successful. It sure would have been a whole lot easier and faster if we had taken the well-worn path up the mountain, but you were brave enough to follow me when I forged my own path, which others found to be unorthodox and downright crazy. Yes, I am crazy. But it takes crazy people to do things that other people say cannot be done. But we made it, and we sure had a lot of fun getting there. And yesterday, as I signed a few of my books to people, they asked me, they said, Nick, are you going to retire? Retire, what what does that mean? Retire, there's no such word in the small dictionary of words that I do have. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm just beginning my journey, baby. I will, I will never be remembered for my business sense or my luck with marriages or for putting my family first. And that was not easy. Being on the road 36 weeks a year when my children were growing up. And they have all forgiven me and I thank them for that. Nick Boliteri speaking in 2014, that's his Tennis Hall of Fame acceptance speech. Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine is on the line. Evening, Caitlin. Good evening. Thanks for having me. We could do 25 minutes on that clip alone. So much to unpack there. And I just want to acknowledge that to accommodate me, the preeminent Nick Boliteri correspondent here in America with my very busy schedule, you guys have decided to preempt more World Cup coverage and discussions that I actually am going to hang around and, and listen to if I can. <laughs> Uh, to talk about this titanic legend of a of a tennis coach and really a larger-than-life personality. So thank you for doing that. Um, and I think I speak for a lot of us in the tennis world that says there have been far too few major, major personalities like Nick Boliteri, and it's hard to imagine anybody uh, really rising up to take his place. 
utterly compelling uh, speaker, as anybody who even just listened to that clip alone uh, can acknowledge. Uh, in, in headline news, he set up this academy, which was very pioneering at the time. 1978 was when he set up this academy and he referenced uh, financially, he may not have been the most uh, natural accountant. And so I think IMG bought it in around 87 when the finances weren't good. But but he was good and the academy was good and it was popular. And the list of players who uh, passed through his hands, Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, Pete Sampras, the Williams sisters, Anna Kornikova, Monica Seles, Boris Becker, a coach to 10 world number ones and uh, kept going right the way through his his later years. So where should we start on Boletari? It's easy to say the number ones, that incredible generational impact on most of tennis for the last 40 years. Um, but beyond that, if you can somehow look past the fact that one personality, one machine churned out so many amazing talents reliably and di- dissimilar talents, you had some natural athletes like an Agassi, you had some some folks who needed to learn the complexity of the game, like a Maria Sharapova, you know, really he, the system worked for a number of different talents. But for me, the part that's so amazing about the way he changed the sport is just creating this academy system in the first place. He wasn't the absolute first, but what he did in Bradenton, Florida, first at a place called the Colony, which was sort of a a rundown old tennis club that he hung around for a few years before building his own facility nearby, he really put that idea of Florida as an international tennis destination. And moreover, this intense training environment where kids, largely kids, although later on he ended up coaching some some touring professionals during the midst of their career instead of just before it, but really the sort of pressure cooker environment that he brought to the ecosystem in Florida uh, changed the game forever because there were academies, disparate Italian, Spanish, uh, Australian, et cetera, beforehand. But what he did to kind of create the modern factory for a mega athlete uh, was transformational and didn't only impact tennis. The IMG Academy, although anybody, even after that sale, continued calling it voluntaries uh, for years up until, you know, very recently, it is now a soccer factory, a football factory, a lacrosse and swimming and sprinting. You know, just every single sport is now housed under this mega, 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 you know, student athlete uh, factory. And I think that to me is really where the most sizable impact that he left uh, is on the sport and the world of sports at large. Yeah, there's a video on YouTube where he's talking about that growth from 40 acres on what was a tomato field into Tennis Academy and now it's 600 acres and a complex involving nine sports and there's labs and all sorts of education facilities there as well. On um, what made him great, uh, and this is where you have personal experience, so this is, you know, you are you are beyond the perfect guest here. So I've seen it said of his tennis knowledge that he was far more of a showman and a motivator than a technician, for instance. And the other, and and I'll hand it over to you here, the other infamous line comes from Agassi, of course, uh, Andre Agassi, where he said in in that brilliant biography of his, I hated it at Boletari's Academy. It was a glorified prison camp, Lord of the Flies with forehands. 
the only way I could get out was to succeed. And Courier referred to Boletari's paratrooper mentality. I've seen a huge amount of love for, for uh, Boletari and his, and his genuine care for his athletes over the last couple of days, though. Completely. And, you know, my own personal experience reinforces what those athletes, although to say that they exceeded my own meager uh, accomplishments is perhaps the, the greatest understatement I could make. But as a teen, as a, as a talent in my, in my, you know, middle teen years, I trained a little bit at Voluntary's Academy. I was invited to, to go down for a few weeks. And uh, it was at the same time as uh, Monica Seles was there, Sharapova was there, Kornikova most notably was there. Um, and it was a, it was a, a, a warlike atmosphere. There was a kill or be killed, um, sort of zero sum game uh, environment there where it was very clear that unless you were improving and winning your practice matches and climbing up the rankings in the international competitions, then you didn't get any attention from the pros, real love from Nick himself, or were considered much of a prospect. And the amount of fodder sort of cannon fodder opponents to be beaten or, you know, kids to sort of lap uh, far outnumbered the talent that was there at the time. Um, it sort of had a dual um, environment of both a elite training ground for a few generational talents, but also uh, kind of a prison-esque environment for everybody else who was just sort of there to, in a lot of cases, pay the bills because those generational talents oftentimes would be granted scholarships. And my own experience of it was very um, intense. It was it was not really centered on any particular teaching of Nick Boletari's because as Jim Courier and even himself admitted, he wasn't much of a tennis coach. He had dabbled in the sport. I think he had read a lot of motivational um, sort of books and articles about it. I know he had been a pro in Puerto Rico at a time, but really his expertise wasn't the game itself. It was to mold a championship attitude. And I think, again, if you think about sort of the at times delicate tennis mentality or sensibility, especially coming into like the sixties and seventies, you know, sure. We had some pugilists and some people with bad attitudes or some folks who were, you know, sort of larger than life. I'm thinking of like your Nastasis or your Vita Stereolitis or, you know, people who sort of had a lot of bon vivant energy uh, who brought it into the sport. There really wasn't this idea of a mercenary kind of approach. And it took a paratroopers real, ruthlessness, which is what he had and why I think he had some apologetic overtones in that Hall of Fame speech that you played, which was basically the idea that if I was screaming at you, it was a form of love. And what he did figure out, obviously, in addition to being a showman and a and a real amplifier for the game, was really this idea of being a motivator for kids, especially young kids um, who didn't necessarily come from rich families, to leave every cell of their being out on the court and treat it essentially as a, as a battle. I think that's why people like Andre Agassi who came up with it. And remember, Andre Agassi didn't just train there. He went to school there mm. and the educational system. And I can say this from having gone to college with several kids who stayed year round was not much to write home about. They didn't learn much. They were mostly on the tennis court uh, for up to eight hours a day. They were doing the bare minimum just to sort of stay accredited as a school. So really this was a, sort of ruthless proving ground. And I think because of that, what you were able to see in terms of how he could produce talent wasn't so much his animating philosophy as a coach or his technical knowledge, but just that he built the gladiatorial arena 
in the first place and was ready with lots of accolades and opportunity for the one person who who made it out of that arena alive. Wow. Wow. That is a lot of collateral damage. Was his abrasive style constant? Constant. He refers to himself, and you can hear it a little bit in the speech, although in some of the more uh, expansive clips you can see about him, I'm thinking specifically of a a film, a very widely well-regarded film called Love Means Zero uh, about Nick. He refers to himself in the third person. He went through seven wives. He didn't see his children very much. He uh, he punctuates most sentences with baby. Um, and, you know, when he got really, really big in terms of notoriety and demand, having coached a number of really good talent, but specifically Agassi, who really put him on the map, that's when he would be uh, seen in the stands at Roland Garros with his wraparound sunglasses and like a, and a cutoff T-shirt or him hanging over the edge of the U.S. Open grandstand you know, cheering on Andre with some, you know, loving endearment screams. Uh, that's when he really got hugely um, sort of notable. And that's when he ditched Andre Agassi for Boris Becker, which broke Andre's heart. You oh, I, referenced I, I, thought, that. I thought Agassi had left him. He ditched no, Agassi. He, he prioritized Boris Becker such that Agassi felt like he was the second fiddle. And Agassi, up until what I understand to be very, very recently, never forgave him. He refused to be in the Love Means Zero documentary. And in fact, it's only, I think, in the last 10 days or so that I have heard with Nick being essentially on his deathbed that they had a bit of a reconciliation. And Andre wrote a very touching, short, but touching tribute to the man on social media. But no, there was no love lost there because Andre felt like um, Nick had kind of left him behind and worked with his, at the time, greatest rival, Boris Becker. Because Agassi won Wimbledon in 92, and I think Boletieri and Agassi split up in 93. I mean, it was, uh, and that was when, as you mentioned, Boletieri was becoming huge. Sellers went to number one, Agassi wins Wimbledon, Courier goes to number one, Boletieri's a household name, IMG have just bought the Academy. I would have thought of all the times to leave Agassi, 1993, early 90s would be the wrong time. No, and I think this is sort of a, I think this is kind of the downside of somebody like Nick Bolletieri. I mean, I don't think it's unrelated that he's been married seven times and he's somebody who was constantly moving forward like a shark. You know, I think for somebody who created so much opportunity, I think it would probably be, and now I'm psychoanalyzing the man. So, you know, forgive me for maybe going out on a limb, but I imagine it would have been hard for him to feel like he could pass up the new opportunities that Andre's stardom afforded him, even if that meant uh, diluting any attention that he could give to any one particular star, right. you know? And I think we see this a lot with sort of celebrity coaches nowadays where maybe their player has some success, they make an insane demand for a raise the next year, and then sure enough, they're on the open market and somebody else snatches them up, right? It's a it's a sort of ruthless game that they play. There are very few athletes and coaches that stay together for a long time. I think prior to that, from what I understand and doing some research and talking to a lot of the older players, that wasn't done as much before this Agassi Boletieri dust up. And it's interesting because to me, a lot of the names you mentioned, the Monica Salazes, the Williams sisters, obviously, Anna Kornikova, you know, most of them went on to not be coached by Nick Boletieri. He didn't keep most of this talent. They churned out through the system after they'd reached a certain threshold. To me, that indicates that Nick probably bought, brought a lot of 
spectacle and hoopla, but also maybe distraction to some of the players who who were achieving and ready to kind of leave it behind, right? right? We haven't seen him in the box for uh, even before he retired for a lot of these players. Um, and I think there there's probably some reasoning behind that, which is that at a certain point, Nick, who refers to himself again in the third person, might have seen himself as a brighter star than some of his mm. his the, the the planets in his constellation, to continue the metaphor. And I think that some of the heartbreak might have to do with a little bit of that. Okay. And Caitlin, do you know if Agassi went to see Balotelli or did they speak or how, what was the nature of the reconciliation? My understanding, and I saw this on social media reported by a few different credible sources, is they had a long phone call. Agassi obviously is based in, uh, mostly in Las Vegas and Nick and his family are mostly still in Southern Florida. So my understanding is that they caught up on the phone because Nick has been sick and this has sort of been an open discussion about how he's doing in the tennis world basically for the last month or so. I mean, he's 91, so you know it's not uh, that much of a surprise, but I think his health declined precariously, obviously, in the last month. And my understanding is they were able to catch up, which is a lovely story. I mean, obviously, you want to see two people be able to reconcile um, in, a, in a what I have to imagine was one of the more meaningful relationships in yeah. both of their lives. We have a clip from the Love Means Zero documentary just to play. So this is Balotelli talking about that quote-unquote controversial style to his coaching. Just have a listen. But you were a controversial coach. Had to be. Had to be because I came from no background. They said I couldn't do it. I did things nobody even thought of doing. I broke the rules of taking kids away from their parents and brought them to an academy, first one in the world. Now, if I didn't break those rules, I don't believe that tennis would be where it is today. Look at who came through the academy. Agassi, Selich, Curry, Krikstein, Arias, Mary Pierce. Come on, let's keep going, baby. My Serena, my Venus, Anna Kornikova, Maria Sharapova, Tommy Haas, well, what are you talking about? I think if you take all the students that attend the academy, I think there's about 180 Grand Slam titles. Hey, baby, what, what do I have to tell you about? Just look at the records. I don't know half of what most coaches know in the world about pronation, turning your hips and shoulders, the, the dynamics of the stroke, Centrifugal force, I don't know one shit. I don't know anything about that. All I know is I wanted to be a winner and with winners. So that's Balateri. Uh, I've, <laughs> I've one more clip. He's, he is such an interesting speaker. Uh, so this is it. You referenced his seven marriages. It's actually eight marriages. I mean, who's counting? But it's eight. Uh, so this is Balateri in that same documentary. And he's talking about the price his family life paid. Have a listen. I was never home, never home. One of my wives said, Nick, it's me or the rascal. And she was referring to Andre Agassi. My laundry was in the washing machine, put it in a big bag. I left, gave it the house, the cars, the boat, the other house. I made a choice, it's Andre. Well, let me say this. I didn't even attempt to stop and say, is this fair? I wanted to be different. I wanted to be successful. And I just moved on. 
he's a curious mix of uh, incredible showmanship and self-promotion and then there's also a redeeming aspect of, of self-awareness in there as well. Yeah, completely. And, uh, you know, I think having acknowledged that there are better technical coaches, there are better husbands, certainly, uh, better fathers, um, but to be so clear in your vision for, especially when you're creating something that doesn't already exist, which is both in terms of the academy, but also generally his sort of approach, you know, I wonder if that's one and the same, if those are two of the same, same two sides of the same coin, right? And I feel, I feel like for me, listening to him speak, you can't help but admire his persistence of vision and singular and singular sort of drive yeah. because i think that ultimately is his legacy and that's what everyone is celebrating about what he's done because it certainly completely transformed the world of tennis for the better for the better okay interesting would he have produced a certain style of player akin to a lot of us could pick out a barcelona footballer was there a voluntary style player that's a great question when i was young, before I went to the Academy Voluntaries, as we called it, we, my family purchased a VHS tape called Attack. And you can still see clips of it online. Andre Agassi is in some spandex shorts hitting against a wall, just ferociously slapping a ball as hard as he possibly can. And Nick is not doing much coaching or much narrating whatsoever, but he's just sort of repeating the word, attack, attack, attack. (laughs) And if you watch all of the players, especially from that generation, play tennis. There's maybe some nuance missing. Maybe there's some, you know, touch that got developed later. Maybe there's some variety that some of them were able to add to their games. But that pugilistic, uncompromising willingness to attack at all times, that's all Nick. Interesting. And that furnace that he created, that gladiatorial aspect, that now seems a touch dated. And I don't know if parents would pack their kids off to that kind of atmosphere necessarily. So when, the last great player he produced or like or have his has his um, academy been accused of being dated or have they moved with the times? I mean, I think one of the benefits of being gobbled up by AMG is AMG has been able to sort of corporatize so much of this in a yeah. way that allows them to kind of hide behind a lot of corporate speech and safety and inclusion and all the kind of language that giant multinationals use to sort of water down what's essentially, uh, you know, what they're up to. And I think in the case of uh, Boletaries, I actually don't think they've watered it down too much. I think it's still a furnace. It's just a lot less shaggy. And now it's a lot more efficient. And I think maybe what they've traded uh, in his sort of gradual, separation from the entity which has happened over a number of years but you know still obviously is is linked in a lot of people's minds myself included is just less of an overt declaration of intention because now you're not sending your kids to a furnace you're sending them to essentially a finishing school but the purpose is the same which is to manufacture champions Uh, nick just did it in a way that was a little bit more overt and you know probably rubbed a lot of people you know certain ways both both good and bad Okay, so in a line or two to finish, what is his legacy in tennis? There's so many aspects to this. I think the fact that he has two, maybe three generations of talent to speak to his ability to move the game forward. As he said in in Love Means Zero, it speaks for itself. Mm. 
Listen, pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and, and giving us your Thanks own experience as well. That was great. Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine with us on the uh, passing of Nick Bollettieri, aged 91. And by the way, if you're wondering how to make 91, the London Times obituary, uh, they say he was hyperactive with a low attention span on less watching tennis. He maintained a rigorous fitness regime into his 80s, rising at 4 a.m., usually on court an hour later for the first lesson of the day, followed by business meetings and blogging. He maintained a strict diet, lean on starch and desserts, but permitted himself the occasional glass of white wine. So there we go. That is Nick Politeri.